My name is Greg Martin, and I'm on the preaching team here at Clarkston Community Church. And uh, I learned in the process of putting this sermon series together that Fred Rogers clothes himself much faster than I do. <laughs> we'll try this again, and there we go. All right. Um, if you were here the Sunday before New Year's Eve, I preached on the story of the Good Samaritan. And really, the story is not about the Good Samaritan. It's about the expert in the law who asks Jesus, hey, I know the, the law says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But he wanted to justify himself, so he said, well, who is my neighbor? And I teased this series seven weeks ago because uh, we wanted to take four weeks and really unpack the idea of who is my neighbor. And in a broader sense, ask, won't you be my neighbor? We've increased, uh, uh, we, we've moved in, in technology quite a bit, and our world has gotten smaller. And 50, 60, 70 years ago, when we talked about our neighborhood, we talked about our uh, friends next door or the family down the street or the kids that would play at the end of the block. That was our neighborhood. But today, many of us, our closest friends are hours away, are hundreds of miles away. Many of you commute to work 30 minutes, 60 minutes, sometimes more. Many of you, on a regular basis, uh, have to work with people closely that are on the other side of the country, or sometimes around the world. And if we actually looked at the way that our, our lives are laid out, who our lives impact and who relies on us, there is overlap with people all around the world. And so if we're going to be honest with ourselves, a neighborhood is our neighborhood is the world. That we have neighbors that live next door, but we have neighbors that live thousands of miles away, but all of our lives are interconnected. And so when the expert in the law comes to Jesus and says, well, who is my neighbor? Jesus doesn't answer. If you remember that sermon, Jesus' answer was not who his neighbor was. Jesus' answer was who was being the neighbor. Basically saying, it doesn't matter who your neighbor is, it's what kind of neighbor are you being? And that's where he sent the expert in the law away. And so... We're going to take four weeks and start to unpack this idea of who is my neighbor and won't you be my neighbor? There's a, a scripture in Matthew chapter 25, and I just need to say, typically when I preach, I like to use an actual hardcore Bible. But as you saw, I had my hands full coming out. So I'm going to use my phone today, if that's all right with all of you. This scripture will be up on the screen, or you can use your Bible or your phone. or It's everywhere. Scripture's all around us, okay? Verse 34 of chapter 25 of Matthew. Jesus is telling a story, an analogy, of what it may be like at the end of time. And what it may be like for all of us to come before God. And at the beginning of this scripture layout, he splits the people up. And verse 34 is where we find it. And it says, Then the king will come to those on his right. Or will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. 
For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. I want to pause for a second. This is halfway through. But I just want to break down, who is Jesus talking about? Who, what, what is he saying? He, he references the hungry. He references the thirst. And he says, you, when I was hungry, you brought me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you brought me something to drink. That was one section. The next section is, when I was a stranger, you invited me in. Then the third, I needed clothes, and you clothed me. The fourth, I was sick, and you looked after me, so the sick. And the fifth, I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer, verse 37, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? Verse 40, the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So let me pause there because I want to get to that last, that last line is, it's juicy, okay? But essentially Jesus is comparing what these people did to the hungry, to the thirsty, to the stranger, to the sick, and to the prisoner. In 2020, how does that translate? Who are we talking about? Who are these people? Are they the hungry? Are they people who uh, live impoverished? Sometimes in the States, here at uh, CCC, we support uh, a program called Blessings in a Backpack where we identify um, at-risk, um, low-income families and we help them uh, by filling up a backpack of food that we send home with the kids every weekend. And that's part of how we try to serve those that are hungry. But we also are involved in missions all around the world in countries that specifically have a high, high uh, poverty rate. So the hungry and the thirsty. Okay. Then it says you were a stranger. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Well, who are, the, who are strangers? Who are people from the outside, who are people that we don't know. The alien, the refugee, the widow, the orphan, the people that have been isolated, marginalized, set off to the side. God says, whatever you've done to that person you've done to me. I was a stranger and you let me in. So, okay, that's probably a good translation there. The next one is, um, I was naked and you clothed me. Maybe he just means people that are naked. But that could extend out to people that are in a bad place in terms of they're dealing with depression, they're feeling uh, particularly exposed and, and, and uh, in a bad place and, and, and need people to come around and comfort and clothe them in that way. That could potentially extend the analogy out. Maybe there are people that we need to serve that are mentally ill, that um, the church that God calls us to love, it's whatever you've done to this person, you've done to me. Then there's the sick. That might be a little easier. People that are struggling, and maybe you came in today and 
you've been dealing with an illness that's not just an illness that's like a two day, two week, and it's ready to go. Like it's been impacting your way of life, and it's taken away pieces of your life that you used to have, or things you used to do, or maybe there's somebody in your life that's sick, and and uh, because of it, uh, you're having to uh, give way more of your time to that person, or your family is trying to gather around that person, and it's take it's you feel like you're losing things. It's just a regular, constant practice of losing things that you used to enjoy or do because of this sickness or illness that exists in or around you. Those are the people that God calls us to tend to. When I was sick, you looked after me. And then finally, the prisoner, and this is the one that gets me a little bit because if someone's in prison, more than likely they did something wrong. If I want to extend the analogy out, he says, you know, I was a prisoner and you visited me. If I, if you've done something, I was done. I, you've done, you have, you've been done something wrong to you, man, boy. You've had something wrong done to you. Someone has wronged you, and you still visit them. You still care for them. You still love them. Whatever you've done to that prisoner, you've done to me. He breaks this all down. And the part that gets me is the very end, where. Uh, the people ask, well, when did we see you hungry? When did we see you sick? When did we see you as a stranger? When did we see you naked? When did we see you as a... What are you talking about? And in this story, God says, whatever you've done to the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you've done to me. In short form, whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. We have a preaching team that meets pretty regularly. And about four months ago, I pitched them on an idea for a sermon series that would focus on all of the marginalized uh, communities, marginalized people groups that uh, the church should be reaching out to, caring for, loving. And we started, they said, well, what would that be like? And I started to make a list, and the list was 10 to 12 long. Uh, you can check with them. It was probably longer than that. But it was everything from uh, the mentally ill, the physically handicapped, the refugee, the orphan, the widow, the uh, the people living in poverty, the um, – the estranged, the on and on and on. I, there was this huge list, and they said, well, Greg, we're not going to do a 14-week series in all these people groups that the church should be serving. That's, you know, you guys are nine weeks in, you'd be like, okay, we get it, right? So let's, 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 let's form this a little bit. Let's turn it into this won't you be my neighbor thing, and let's make it four weeks. And so as I approached this series, I started to think, well, which, I, I approached it as which marginalized communities do I want to talk about? Like which ones do I think that the church should really engage with? Is it orphans? Is it the process of adoption and people who don't have uh, parents or a family group? Is it like I started to break down each one, but this this verse switched everything for me because the last part when the people ask when did we see when did we do that? God says whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done to me, which means. One of those may be a, a least of these to you, but another may not. I may pick four marginalized communities that need our help, that God is calling us to love, and you may go, yep, check, 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 check. But if we did a fifth week, that might be the one where you're like, ooh, I'm not on board with that one. Who, who is your least of these? Who are the people that when you look at, you're like, I... I'm out on that one. Who are the for some of you, it's people you work with, right? 
when when God says love your neighbor as yourself, you're like, yeah, except for Jeff, <laughs> right? Maybe I don't love Jeff so. And, and for you, so for some of you, it's pretty easy to identify who your least of these is. But, and this is not an accusation to any one person, so no one throw anything up at me. But existing in a lot of us is a subtle or not so subtle racism. Existing in us is uh, this ability for us to take a subgroup and write them off on our head, in our head, whether it's uh, based on their sexual orientation, whether it's by the religion that they practice, the ethnicity that they come from. But we we are um, great. Some of us, so you ever been on someone who's like outwardly racist and you're like, whoa, you said that out loud, dude, like easy, like pump the brakes. But there are other people who have their discrimination or xenophobia or whatever it is that's a little more subtle that usually starts like this. And then they lean in and say something. It's subtle. You guys know what I'm talking about? The people, and, and, and that could be you. I don't want to just say, yeah, there's other people out there that are like this. We could be sitting in here and there could be existing in some of our spirits a subtle racism, xenophobia, uh, homophobia, whatever it is. And if we say, if, if we're trying to identify who is the least of these, that subgroup, I would challenge you, is your least of these. And so I would encourage you at this point, before I move any further, to say, when God creates someone, he creates them in his image. So even if it's someone that's in that group for you, and name a subgroup, that's created in God's image. And when you write them off, you're writing off one of God's creation in his image, just like you. Now, I'll take it even a step further. Because a neighborhood is more than just what's on my street or down the block, because our neighborhood is our world, because our lives are built on others and others are built on us, and there we are so interconnected, there are ways of life, things that we do, purchases that we make that impact other subgroups and we may be, just by the basis of, of what we do, hurting those subgroups. We may be buying a material, and I, and I, I used an example uh, out in the Connection Center. There's a sp specific store where for a long time I was like, man, these t-shirts are cheap. This is awesome. And then you read just a little bit and you go, oh, that's how they're so cheap. Because the people making them are living in substandard conditions. Those are our neighbors. And so you're saying, well, Greg, are you saying that for me to love my neighbor, I have to like look into all of this and see what all of this does? In the words of Becca, your worship leader, who said this three times to me this week, so eventually it sunk in, when you make a purchase, you're voting for something. When you support a business, you're voting for something. When, you're, when your money goes somewhere, when your time goes somewhere, when your energy goes somewhere, you're for that thing. And if that thing is impacting your neighbor in a way that is negative and hurting them, then it might be time to reevaluate how we are spending our resources and if we are actually loving our neighbor. Because you may say loving your neighbor, okay, that's, 
that's great. I mean, I don't, I'm not racist, but I will also say this point. You are responsible for what you are indifferent to. I'll say it again. You are responsible for what you are indifferent to. You see, when God gave the greatest commandment, he didn't say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and don't be a jerk. Like, that wasn't the commandment. The commandment was what? Love your neighbor. What does love look like? What is that supposed to mean? Uh, these subgroups, and, 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 and when I talk about these things, I think it's important to recognize the human side. And so I want to tell you a story of what happened three weeks ago. And uh, I'll just start by saying that in our preaching team meeting, when I told uh, the group that I was going to be preaching on this and some of the topics we were hitting, they said, <laughs> this was an actual warning that came from our preaching team meeting. All right, Greg, that sounds great. I think it's going to be great. Just make sure that you make it clear that you're not for open borders. That was an actual warning that came from our preaching team. And I was like, that wasn't even in my, on my radar. I don't even think I'm saying anything like that. So let me tell you the story, what happened, how it's come about, and then I'll let you think through it. I run an organization called Draw Disaster Relief at Work. We take supplies and we take volunteers to areas hit by natural disasters around the country, floods, hurricanes, tornadoes, wildfires. We take those supplies so that the people who are impacted by those storms can take a step back toward normalcy and do it quickly. There was a storm last summer that hit in the south that we, uh, we identified as uh, having a need. We put together seven pallets of uh, supplies, and we, uh, with a partner of ours, we put it on their truck. They were going to take it down uh, to the Gulf uh, in Louisiana and distribute it. After we gave it to them, we didn't really follow up. I just assumed it got there. But what happened after we gave it to them was that there was a logistics issue. And by the time their truck got to Louisiana, the supplies that we sent weren't needed anymore. And so they sat in a warehouse. Four months later, that organization was involved uh, in the immigration crisis on the Mexico-Texas border. And they were working in the refugee camp that is just on the Mexico side, literally 100 feet over the bridge into Mexico where thousands of people or refugees are, are living and seeking asylum. They're working there, and they decided these supplies would help in that camp, and so they sent them down. After they sent them down, they took a picture of it. Their director sent, took a picture of it, sent it to me, and said, hey, just want to let you know your buckets made a difference. And I said, uh, what's that now? I had no idea this is where they were. And he, and he explained the situation, and he explained how they got there. And I said, well, did they help? I said, yeah, they were a huge help to these people. I mean, you can't imagine their conditions. I said, well, do they need more stuff? What do they need? And he said, do you want to come see? And so I went to our board because Disaster Relief at Work is a disaster relief agency. We are not a – I'm sorry. We do natural disasters. We don't do man-made disasters. This is, the immigration crisis is obviously a man-made disaster. And so I said, I understand that this is a political powder keg. There are people on both sides of whatever politics exists. And I don't care about the politics, okay? What I, what I went to them, I said, is it worth us checking out and seeing if there's a way to draw or anybody could help out? And they said, well, yeah, let's at least, it's worth a fact-finding trip. So three weeks ago, a friend and I jumped on a flight, flew down to McAllen, Texas, and we're given a three-day tour 
with an organization called Urban Strategies that oversees all the nonprofits doing work on both the Mexico and the United States side of the border in the middle of this immigration crisis. On the first day, we learned a lot. There are multiple ports where people will come and seek asylum, and the U.S., for obvious reasons, is trying to slow down the flow. There's been a, a massive flow of people that are seeking asylum or uh, trying to gain citizenship through the southern border, and they're trying to like slow it all down. And so they, uh, they would close a couple ports. There was one port open when we went, and these things are fluid. They change from uh, month to month. But the one port that was open was in Brownsville, Texas, on the border at Matamoros, Mexico. And so we toured and saw a respite center there. On the Mexico side is a refugee camp, refugee camp where 2,000 people live. Let me tell you about these 2,000 people. 100% of them are from the Central American uh, Northern Triangle, which is Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. And uh, the studies that have been done show that anywhere between 65 and 75% of the people that are in that camp have had an act of violence against a family member before they left. So the majority are fleeing for their lives because the drug cartels hold such sway in the areas where they live. So they travel and get where they are. When they get to the U.S. border, they can apply for asylum. Usually, once they apply, their case takes about six to ten months to be heard. And once they've uh, applied for that, they will sit in the refugee camp. They will wait on the Mexico side for their case to be heard. And when they're over there, the people from Mexico don't want them there. They're not from Mexico. Either. I mean, these people aren't from Mexico, and the Mexicans that live in that area don't want them, and so they are shunned, and they live in a place that has no running water, that has no electricity. There are people there that, I mean, they're basically living in tents or under canopies, and they're cooking in drums that are uh, out of old used washers. The hygiene is uh, inhumane. And they wait, and they wait, and they wait six to ten months. And their case is heard. And their case can be heard uh, three different times. If it's heard and they're granted asylum, it's because they have a sponsor on the United States side. They have a family, distant family member that lives somewhere else in the United States. So a distant cousin and uncle, whatever. And so what happens if they're granted asylum? They are sent directly to the Greyhound bus station. They're not allowed to just roam about the United States once they're in. They're sent there, and they're put on the first bus that goes to their sponsor, wherever that is. Now, these people have traveled for how long? They sat in inhumane conditions for how long? They get there. They cross the border with only the clothes on their back. And in the entire town of Brownsville, which is over 150,000 people, there is one church that's working with people that have been granted, granted asylum. It is Iglesias, or sorry, Iglesia Baptista West Brownsville. Most of the churches there have tried to stay away because it is a political powder keg. If you agree to help the refugees in that town, it's because you are strongly anti-Trump. And if you decide that you're not going to help the refugees, well, then you are definitely pro-Trump. And it's like they, they, the politics keep people away from helping humans. This one church has gained a uh, relationship with the Greyhound bus station. And the, if someone's granted asylum, the bus station calls this church. The church will come and pick those people up. They'll take them to get a shower, a hot shower, which they haven't had in months. They'll give them a hot meal, which they have not had in a long time. They'll give them a new wardrobe since they only came across with the clothes on their back. They'll give them a hygiene kit for the road, which is huge because the hygienic uh, issues on that side are awful. And they'll give them food, and then they go back to the station 
before their bus leaves for wherever their sponsor lives. That is the conditions there. Day two, there are communities along that southern border on the U.S. side where maybe someone was born to an undocumented immigrant in the States, or maybe they were transported by a coyote, someone in the drug cartel who's paid to get them across, and they're there, and they want anonymity because they're afraid for their lives. If they get sent back, they don't know what's going to happen. And so they take land, and they buy land from a landowner, and they'll buy a plot of land for $100 down and 13% interest. And they'll buy it in a place where there is no city or town government, like if their house is on fire, the fire department, no one's coming to put the fire out. And there's no building codes, so you would have shacks that are just mangled together with extension cords that get electricity from one shack to another. There was one RV that was a 30-year-old RV where a family six lived, and it was this in the whole community. Every 20th house would be a house that would be like a palace. It would be a, a gorgeous home. And when we're getting the tour, I said to our tour guide, is that, what's going on there? And they said, oh, those houses, those are 99.9% of the time someone who's connected to the cartels, and they're here to remind the people in the village not to step out of line because something may happen to their family back wherever they're from. The cartels are religious people. They pray before their drug deals. They pray that they're not shot before something is trafficked. And so they respect churches. So in some of these colonias, there are churches that try to do outreach to the children that live there, that try to serve the people who are living below the poverty line and trying to figure out what's next. They try to offer immigration classes for the people that do have a path to have uh, legal citizenship. When we went to this church, across from the church was a sign that said drive through Chulas. And I said to our, our tour guide, I said, is that, is that taqueria? Is that food? She's like, no, that's, that's a whorehouse. She said that the women in there have all been trafficked. They're there. You can drive up, you walk in, you pick the woman you want, you take them where you want them, do what you want them, bring them back. That's what it is. And my heart broke, and I said, every fiber in my being wanted to call a human trafficking agency. Let's get these women out of here. And she said, well, you can do that. But the people who run that are connected to cartels. If you do that, there will be repercussions in the community. There will be repercussions with these girls' families back where they live. Repercussions will be ten times worse than what's happening here. And so nobody does anything. And that's happening today in Texas, in our country. And it broke my heart. These are humans. And that story that I tell you between those two is one subgroup of marginalized people. And for every story I could tell you, you could hear stories of kids that are orphaned, that can't find, that can't get adopted because of red tape. For every story like that, there is a heartbreaking story of an illness that is taking a life and draining every resource from a family who can't afford a long, drawn-out death. For every story like that, there are marginalized people all around the world, including in our own community. And if Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, these people are our neighbors. This world is our neighbors. So I go back to in the preaching team meeting when they said, be careful that you're not saying you're for open borders. 
I'm not taking any political stance. I don't want to take a political stance. Politics is gross, okay? I care about the humans, and there are humans in all walks of these marginalized communities where if I'm the church, if I'm following the gospel that I'm called to, I need to love them radically. When the church was born, after Pentecost, Jesus goes up. It was illegal. People were jailed and sometimes murdered for claiming their faith in Jesus Christ. And even in spite of that, the church grew like wildfire. Why? Because the Roman Empire and all the sub-governments in that time were taxating the heck, taxating, taxing, taxing the heck out of all the people that lived there, up to 80-85% taxation rates, and people were barely getting by. And the church uh, lived under the ethos that if you have a need, come be a part of us, and we'll try to make sure that we're helping you make your, and meet your need. And it grew and it grew, not just because of the power of the Holy Spirit and the fact that God was present in their midst, but also because the love that they had was dramatic. It was radical. It was a love that was unlike any other. It was the love that Jesus had for us when he jumped on the cross and died for our sins. I don't think it's ironic that the main symbol of our faith is a cross. And the cross only exists because there's a line that goes vertical. We have to have a relationship with God and have it real and regular and hear from him. But that grace that transforms us can't just stay there. The cross only exists if there's also the horizontal. If the grace that impacts my life has transformed me, it has to transform my neighborhood. Right? And so I ask again, maybe it's somebody you work with. Maybe it's a subgroup. Maybe it's a group of people that you've never even thought about. Oh, man, I never thought that when I live like this, it impacts their community in such a hurtful way. Who is your least of these? Who is the person or people that if you're going to be a neighbor, you need to start seeing them as created in the image of God? I think if we start to see everyone through the eyes of God and see that they're made in his image, our behavior starts to change. And we don't get so laissez-faire about our everyday relationships. We start to become a part of a movement that says that our love has to change lives because his grace changed my life. Make sense? Who is your least of these today? We'll unpack this more in the next three weeks. But the first thing I want to say is we can pick whatever marginalized community there is. I told the story of one. There's stories of many others, and we will tell those occasionally throughout the series. But if we, we don't have our heart changed by the grace that Jesus has saved us with, then whoever we identify is secondary. I have to be ready to be the neighbor that God's called me to be. And then when I say, who's my neighbor, I recognize all of them as created in his image.